This is the fourth anniversary uh, this Tuesday, the fourth anniversary of the day that I delivered a conference paper I had worked 10 years on and there were seven people there to hear it because the weather was so terrible. Even our own staff left early. Like, Tim, I really wanted to hear your paper, but it's getting terrible and I got to leave. That's Chris who said that to me and, 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 and others. And they all, they all, but they all left. So we had the pastor of that church and the ladies who made our lunch, who lived across the street, and another pastor who lived in the same town, I think, the retired guy, and I, and Pastor Sutton, to his credit, who, who I was his ride, but he, he, he stayed. But that's, that's when I gave that paper on, my, my, uh, on, the, on the PL verb stem. My Hebrew, my Hebrew paper. I had worked 10 years on that paper. <sighs> Did one of you ask me, was it this class, if I would like do a, like a user-friendly version of that for you guys sometime? Or was that not you guys? Can be asked. Yeah, say yes. There's the, 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 the thing about that verb... Uh, 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 Hebrew is uh, Hebrew is uh, uh, very poor in adjectives and adverbs. There's a limited number of nouns and verbs, and so it makes up for it in other ways. But if let's say a typical language has, I'm just going to make up a number. Okay, typical language has say uh, oh ten thousand ordinary words. You know, Hebrew does the same work with about. 4,000 ordinary words. It, um, and Hebrew makes up the difference by uh, getting jiggy with the verbs. It does things to the verbs. So there are seven ways that the Hebrew language can augment a verb um, and change. But it's the same word, though. It just changes the sometimes a prefix or a suffix, or, how, or, or actually it'll sometimes just lengthen the vowels. And so you have to learn to look out for that. But the ordinary word for kill, I'll just say, um, has a passive, which is be killed, like in English, although it doesn't have a helping verb in, in Hebrew. It just is the word. But then it has an intensive, which would be to slaughter, or to a passive of that, to be slaughtered, a causative to make him kill, a passive of the causative to make him be killed, and then a reflexive, which is to kill oneself. And all, but you can do that with practically every verb. Um, and one of those, which is the intensive, the one I said slaughter for, um, is the PL stem. And that thing jumps around in how it behaves in the Hebrew language in a strange way. And I, all, all through my, my classroom years in college and seminary, our, the professors always said, this, this does strange things and we don't fully understand it and someday somebody should look into it. Well, I found out that a guy did. His name was Ernst Jenny. Um, he was, I 
think he was either German or maybe Swiss um, or something, or, or um, would that be Dutch or something like that? Anyway, he, he did a, a, some research on this thing and came up with a couple of interesting observations, all in uh, 1968. And, uh, and I noticed that that's also the year that he published Hebrew grammars all changed. They kind of adopted, I'll call it Jenny's system from the old system. And so I, I, I noticed that 1968 is kind of like the dividing year in Hebrew grammars. But I, had, I, I did research in every Hebrew grammar, old, new, online, in the stacks at the college, any stuff that I had, all, everything I could find. And I found 35 different separate uses for the P.A.L. Hebrew stem. Um, fascinating stuff. My favorite one, just to wet your whistle, is that the word for bless, which is baruch in Hebrew, when it's in the P.A.L. stem, and only in that stem, and only in certain contexts, can invert the meaning of the word entirely. Do you remember Job's wife? When things got bad with Job, it's the only thing she ever says in the book. She says what? Curse God and die. It's the word Baruch. Bless. But it's in the P.L. stem. It's Barek. Curse God and die. And I, I, so I began my research by calling that the P.L. inversive and going from there. And, and, but it, it took years and years and years of practice and of analyzing things. I had to go, I had to go through and count every P.L. verb in the Bible, but I found out stuff about the authorship of the Pentateuch based on this research, and really cool things happened. And if I keep talking about it, we're never going to get to today's verses. So let's see if I started the recording. I did, which means all of that is for posterity. We are at the, if you, if you got a copy of the handout, the handout goes into today's stuff, and being who I am, I missed like two major sections of today's class in the notes. So, sorry. And let's go on. I was going to work on it before class, but somebody was talking to me and I couldn't do it. So, we'll just move on. Jesus said, and we're in, we're in uh, where are we? Matthew 21, 28 here and following. So, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. He came to the second and said the same thing. The second son answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. I can't help but feel the pang of guilt because this illustrates the difference between my brother and me, almost exactly. Because growing up, he was the mouthy one who was the good boy, and I was the upfront good boy who was naughty and later, but never mind. This is not my confessional, but your class. Um, but also, this is a picture, uh, really, that what's, what's, what's being illustrated for us here in this, isn't it the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles, ultimately? That's what Jesus is showing us. The Jews 
said, or rather the Gentiles said no, but then later were obedient, came to faith. The Jews said yeah, but then turned away um, later on when it came down to it. When you read this, do not plug yourself into the one or the other, but understand that we probably all change back and forth, don't we, on this one. How many of you have seen or heard of Star Wars? Okay. There's a little robot in Star Wars called R2-D2. The little blue and white guy with the silver dome and is my favorite and all of that. And I, I built two of them in my lifetime uh, for co- uh, Halloween costumes for my children. And so one of them is still a toy box in my house. But in the front of R2-D2 is a little round light that's half red and half blue and it changes depending on his mood it's like his mood watch for those of us who grew up in the 70s um and it just changes and i've always thought that that has something to do with the colors of lightsabers also but let's not talk about my star wars philosophy let's just that i think that when r2d2 is more red he is excited agitated upset whatever when it's more blue he's more calm and so forth. And if you, if, you, if you now make that more of a black and white, dark and light thing in your life, we sometimes are more sanctified and sometimes we're less sanctified. But it's not like we're only going in one direction, right? We go back and forth all the time in our lives. And that's, that's what we're like. We make steps forward, we make steps backward. It's not as if I get to be more holy the older I get. You would think that that would be the case, but no, that's not how Christians are. We make mistakes in our old age. Just ask King David. Yeah, yeah. Jesus said to them, Amen, I tell you. Or old NIV, was it I tell you the truth? Something like that. King James was what, verily? I have something to say about King James a little bit later, maybe. Amen, I tell you, the tax, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. However, the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. Even when you saw this, you did not change your mind and believe him. So Jesus is still talking, or still in the context of John's uh, uh, murder in some, in some sense, um, but it's, it's a, been a long time, but still. Um, Jesus says, you should have believed John, but the, the, the pagans, and he illustrates them with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He says, they're coming in. What's, what's keeping you out? 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Can I just stop there? Do you understand the concept of building a vineyard in their ancient culture? A vineyard was, was, was crucial. You know, in everybody's, if you had any land, you would want it to have uh, fig trees and olives and grapevines. You, you know, those are the staples, the basic staples besides wheat, but those things. Why did you have to have 
uh, figs because they're food that lasts, you know, dried figs, you, it's, it's just food for a long, long time. We hear it in the Old Testament also, they sometimes would eat fig cakes and raisin cakes uh, as, as like, uh, where's Mark? We had, uh, yeah, that, were you guys here when Mark brought us um, Rice Krispie bars that one time? I was talking about raisin cakes and fig cakes and I talked about them being about the size of a cut Rice Krispie bar. So Mark brought Rice Krispie bars the next week. Like, I mean, big sheets of Rice Krispie bars. It was too much. It was amazing. Um, the guys in the tech department at the college were thrilled because they got to have them when we were done with them. It was pretty cool. Um, but uh, um, so the vineyard, though, offense, you understand why offense you know, to, to keep out the critters and so forth. And you understand why a wine press, because you're going to make the, you know, the juice into, into wine. But why a watchtower? And we're not talking about a, like a medieval, you know, a gigantic thing, but just a, maybe a platform with a ladder, something like that. But why would you have a watchtower? Yes, to prevent somebody from stealing. But not uh, somebody. Well, I don't think it's a, it's not a scarecrow, but it's to look out for probably foxes. There, there are references to foxes in the Old Testament wrecking vineyards. Even in Song of Solomon, you know, the, the foxes, the little foxes that ruin our vineyard and stuff like that. And they, I, so I'm not really sure of... Um, that maybe it, it was just a, a an impressively big vineyard, but that it had a watchtower is an odd detail. But but it just it says something about he wanted to keep out you know maybe some people, but I think probably also critters and stuff. And in terms of the parable, the watchtower would probably we would probably say would be the law and the gospel or doctrine in general. And the lookout on the watchtower who isn't in the parable but would be um, you know, pastors and prophets and so forth. So you, you get to some interesting details by looking at that. But let's look at the other details that are here. And one is he leased it out to some tenant farmers and went away on a journey. Pretty common thing. Get some guys to look after the field while I'm gone. You know, Like if I go away, I need somebody to look after Mrs. Pickle. Do you all know who Mrs. Pickle is? She's my fish. Yeah, my goldfish. She's in my office. Yeah, yeah. When the time approached the harvest, uh, the, to harvest the fruit, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Who? Uh, let's just let's just walk through some of these details. Who's the owner in the parable? God. Who are the tenants who are going to go and collect the fruit? They're, they're not angels, and they're not Jesus yet. They are messengers. I think the prophets. The prophets. Also because of what happens to some of them. So the tenant farmers seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. And that describes what happened to some of the prophets. Um, most recently, John the Baptist. You know, Sent, then the landowner sent, landowner sent even more. Did I say landowner? 
think it's been a long day. He sent even, that, that's, that, that, that's our, almost a real word, land, land loaner, right? The lender, the land lender, and I, forgive me, let's stop this. He sent even more servants than the first time. The tenant farmers treated them the same way, so more. And uh, there are incidents like this in uh, 2 Chronicles 24, is the murder of Zechariah. In, uh, uh, in Jeremiah, it's in the 20s somewhere, there's the murder of a prophet named Uriah. Not the Hittite, but a different Uriah prophet. And there are other prophets who suffered in the days of, oh, way back, um, uh, in the early days of the, of, oh, it's in the days of Jezebel. And the, if it's Jezebel, then we can talk about uh that's, uh, who's the prophet in the time of? Samuel. Uh, no, Samuel is much earlier before Saul. I think, I think we're, it, would that be early Elijah? Something like that? Or anyway, there was a, there was a, there was a prophet named Obadiah at that, at that same time who may or may not be the Obadiah, who wrote his own book of the Bible, or might, might have been a different Obadiah, but um, he actually preserved a hundred prophets from Jezebel's knife. Uh, she wanted to kill all of them, but he found two caves big enough to hide 50 in one and 50 in the other, other to spare them from, from wicked Queen Jezebel and, and did uh, rescue them. Um, uh, just just hideous stuff. Also, the prophet Amos gets beat up by another prophet, different guy. There's a prophet in, uh, in Kings who was sent to deliver a message by God and God told him, go this route to deliver the message. Don't double back. Go around this way and whatever you do, don't stop along the way. Just keep going home. And, this, and, a, and an older prophet who had been a false prophet stopped him. And said, hey, no, double back here and come and stay the night with me because you're probably tired and it's okay. And he lied. He goes, God told me it's okay. And do you know what happened to the guy? He gets killed by a lion because of this. And the old prophet feels really bad. Well, that's nice. But just for no reason, just because... He wanted to show that, that he could stop God's prophet or whatever. And it, it, was, it was a perfectly cordial thing. He just made him some food and had him spend the night and then he left, sent him on his way. But, but because he had disobeyed the Lord, he was killed. Um, and, uh, and the guy felt really bad about it, the old prophet. But just for no reason, he had this younger prophet, you know, uh, uh, killed by the Lord. And they, the prophets were treated horribly. Well, the tenant farmers, okay, they treat them the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them. Well, who's the son? Here's Jesus. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. To our ears, this sounds like madness, doesn't it? Who, who would ever think that they could kill the son and claim the inheritance? And I just thought that about this parable for many years until I found out this was a legal thing. This could happen. 
in Israel. If the tenants were farming and the heir died and nobody else would claim the property, the tenants could claim the property for themselves. So there was legal trickery going on here. And in the parable, Jesus seems to hint to that. But our frame of reference that this is complete madness is still valid because this was just ridiculous. It was dumb. Because what's going to happen? Well, verse 39 40, they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Remember, this is Tuesday of Holy Week. Let's take 39, verse 39. What are those three events in Holy Week? First of all, they took him. What's that? Jesus arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They threw him out of the vineyard. What's that? It's where Jesus is made to carry the cross out of the city. And then they killed him, which, of course, is the crucifixion. When we get closer to this um, in, a, in a few weeks, um, I've got some slides that will help you uh, figure out where probably where Golgotha was, the hill where Jesus was crucified. Um, in ancient times, uh, many people thought that it was west of the city. And then in a little bit more recent times, somebody came up with the idea of, no, I wonder if it was north, you know, up, up above the crest of the, of, the, of the hill. And many people for, for a while in like Bible maps and stuff, put Golgotha north of Jerusalem and some older Bibles, that's what you find. But more and more, people are going back to that original idea that no, I think it was west of the city. For one thing, it can't be south or east. So it's either north or west. Because um, east of the city is the Mount of Olives and he wasn't crucified on the Mount of Olives. And south of the city is a valley with no hills. So you've got no choices except north or, or, or east. And east of the city, the Romans built a road uh, and they seem to have cut uh, through some hills that were there. And so some archaeologists, including uh, some in our synod, think that the Romans actually destroyed, not for religious reasons, but for practical reasons, probably destroyed most of Golgotha just to make the, the road a little bit easier and wider. What they're doing on Highway 14, you know, just, just that. You know, but one little weird chunk of Golgotha remains uh, at one point beside the hill. And if you take my meaning, you know, the Golgotha means the hill of the skull. It's as if the whole skull's been chopped away except for one cheek. You know, that's, that's all that's there is this weird little thing. And so that's where they think the crucifixion happened. And the reason why they think that is because just behind it, and I don't mean uh, hundreds of yards, but hundreds of feet, just behind it, you know, just a few yards away, uh, is, are, 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 are a bunch of caves that are all that's left of an ancient quarry and that could have been used and probably were used for tombs. And so Jesus was not taken very far after the crucifixion. It was, after all, the Passover and all that. And so um, the, they think that that's... I've got some slides that show 
pictures of that 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 we'll see. Um, and 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 the advantage is the pictures are not selfies from my associate, so uh, they're 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 easier to see photographs from from a professor. So. I don't think that we'll no we'll be done with this book by the time because my son is going to Israel next summer. Um. And I'm, I'm hoping he brings pictures back for me also that are not selfies. But we'll see. We'll see. All right. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, killed him. Verse 40. So when the landowner comes, what will he do to those tenant farmers? They told him, well, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. Then he will lease out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruit when it is due. Who are the other tenants? The Gentiles. Yeah, a lot of this stuff points to the Gentiles rather than the Jews. In other words, to you. To you. Yeah. Before we go on, I want to uh, look at this picture for a second. This is a... Uh, it's not the ideal picture. Somebody made it because it was convenient and everything. That's not exactly what a cornerstone would be. Um, but in the arch, that is exactly what a keystone would be in the middle. That's that specially cut stone at the, at the top of an arch. The brilliance of the architecture of a keystone is that the weight of whatever wall is above the keystone, because of the cut of the keystone, the weight is transferred and it does not go down any longer. The weight is pushed to the side and goes through the other stones that are also cut at angles and finally down into the dirt, into the soil below the arch. That's the genius of an arch, is that architecturally it transfers the weight. And so there are ancient um, uh, uh, channels for water called a viaduct made of nothing but arches, just arch after arch after arch after arch. Some of them are still standing after two, even 3,000 years. And there's no mortar. It's just stones on top of stones. There are no pins. There's no, there's, it's just perfectly cut stones. And the, the, the things resist earthquakes and uh, even bombs and mortar shelling and all kinds of other, and, and, and even survives middle school boys, which is really saying something. Um, let's just go past that. Okay, uh, the thing above the keystone is the capstone um, at the top of a wall. To preserve the integrity of the wall, a capstone is required. I mean, and just like above your house, you like to have a roof, right? If you didn't have a roof this winter, what would be inside of your house? Anything but you. Yeah, right? Ice, snow, and Foxes, those little foxes that ruin our vineyard and other things. The cornerstone at the bottom, that looks like a cornerstone, but it would not be at the bottom of an arch. It would be at the corner of a, of a whole building. The idea of the ancient cornerstone was not decorative. And do you already know this about the cornerstone? But it was actually a model of the finished building. Its dimensions were the same as the finished project. And it's edge was cut so that it was the line the building had to be in line with and everything and it's and then it's uh, ratios were the ratios of the finished building so that if the cornerstone is true the whole building will be true 
And the, 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 the architect would plumb down with a lead and a line, he'd plumb down to the cornerstone and so forth. Well, these are the images Jesus uses. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or capstone. Hebrew, a little bit vague on cornerstone, capstone in some places, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's why I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, about his, or heard his parables, they knew he was talking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they were afraid of the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. So essentially, Jesus is saying, just like a builder would be careful about the stones he uses, whether it's keystone, cornerstone, capstone, whatever it is, you builders have taken the one that was the ideal stone and you rejected it, you, and now you're going to trip over it. That's, that's the, the essence of, of those words of Jesus. You're going to stumble over it, and you're going to be trapped by that. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.